Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Ontario government announced plans to introduce legislation this fall to freeze rents for some families, but some critics say this could actually make a bad situation even worse. Kids are heading back to school in the next couple of weeks, and many still have concerns. We're discussing kids wearing masks and, of course, small class sizes, but what about the ventilation concerns with this airborne virus? And over the weekend, protests for defunding the police in Montreal saw the statue of John A. Macdonald come down. We'll get into the details about the implications of that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about something that uh, has been a concern, well, long before COVID-19 came along, but I mean, this, like so many other different things, uh, it has exacerbated the situation dramatically. The Ontario government now says it will introduce legislation this fall to freeze rent for some families this year. The government says that if the bill passes, the vast majority of families will not see rent increases. Well, however well-intentioned that legislation might be, it's got an awful lot of people concerned uh, about the ramifications of it. I want to bring Cole Weber into the conversation. Uh, Cole is a legal clinic worker at landlordsoftoronto.com, uh, the webpage that you want to check to. Cole, thank you so much for the time today. Glad you could join us. Thanks for having me. I'm looking at the stats here, I mean, and I know it's different from city to city here. Uh, Hamilton is hit particularly hard by this, so is Toronto, uh, but there are some cities that have actually seen rent decreases. What's going on here in southern Ontario that, that we seem to be at the other end of the stick? What we've seen in southern Ontario is a housing crisis for the last decade where rents mm-hmm. have skyrocketed and rental housing has been consolidated in the control of fewer and fewer uh, financial interests. So COVID didn't create the housing crisis, but it has exacerbated it. And in the context of mass unemployment and a social crisis, we see that tens of thousands of tenants are facing the prospect of being evicted from their homes. Well, and, and I know, as you've mentioned also, as many of them are already evicted, which is part of the problem, which is why we're seeing, you know, basically tent shelters coming up here right around uh, different communities. Right? There's no place for these people to go. I mean, they, they can't afford a place. I mean, the, uh, the, the average cost of a one-bedroom apartment in Hamilton has tripled in the last uh, 20 years, uh, and it's, it's well over $1,400 now a month. And it, if, you're, if you're on government assistance programs, there's no way they can afford a place to live. That's right. And for people who are working, who lost their jobs or had their hours cut during COVID, they haven't been able to make their rent in full. And the Ontario government is doing absolutely nothing to protect these tenants. Well, let's talk about what they are proposing, okay? Because I know some people are going to look at this and say, hey, what's the big idea? This is going to be fine. You know, they're going to freeze rents, and that should should make everything good, and everybody's going to be happy. Everybody will have a roof over their head. By doing what they're doing with legislation, there are some ramifications that, that frankly, are going to be very detrimental to a lot of these people that are in precarious situations. That's right. In Ontario, there is no rent control on vacant rental units. And so this creates a financial incentive for landlords to push out sitting tenants so that they can raise rent without limits once the unit is vacant. So by, quote unquote, freezing rent in 2021, the Ontario government would, in effect, be increasing that financial incentive for landlords to evict tenants. So in the absence of an extended 
eviction moratorium, which protects tenants who have not been able to pay rent in full during the crisis, this move could actually worsen the situation for tenants. So I, I want our listeners to understand the, the the gravity of this situation. Then, so in other words, if I'm if I'm behind in my rent right now and I'm paying say nine hundred bucks a month for a one bedroom, that's probably on the low side. But for the sake of argument, it would behoove that landlord, uh, if they were so intentioned, to basically force me out, and then they could charge fifteen hundred, sixteen hundred bucks for that same unit. That's exactly right. The apartment building where I live, when I moved in in twenty fourteen. Uh, rents on two-bedroom apartments were fourteen fifty. I just checked the other day, and to rent the same two-bedroom apartment today is now $2,100. And, and they read those. I mean, the landlords read those. And I'm not trying to say all landlords are evil people, uh, but they're in a financial crisis, and they're looking at this, and they figured, hey, boy, if I can get rid of, uh, you know, Cole Weber, but I, I can almost double what I'm getting from that uh, that particular unit. So there's there's a, a business case for them to do this. Does the government not get that? No, they understand this completely. And actually, they are doing everything in their power to help landlords increase their profits. At the end of July, during the state of emergency, the government introduced Bill 184, which actually makes the eviction process faster at the landlord and tenant board. So the government is knows perfectly well uh, what the situation is and they're taking every action that they're taking has been to benefit landlords and to help landlords increase their profits at the expense of working class tenants. But the uh, among the damage that that is caused by that of course are the fact that there are an increasing number of homeless people, again, in southern Ontario, but just about in every other city, too. And again, it's not because of COVID-19. Uh, COVID-19 just made this ugly situation even uglier uh, because of what they're doing. And and I guess the, the sad part about this, and you see this in Toronto with Meritori, and we certainly see it here, and we've seen it in London with the 10 cities they've got there, uh, the responsibility to fix this mess come, goes down to the municipalities, not the province, which actually caused this, or at least made it worse anyway. Municipalities actually have a role to play here because sure. under emergency legislation, municipal mayors have broad power to make any order. And so tenants in Toronto have been calling on John Tory to ban evictions in Toronto during this crisis. Now, and, and we, I know people are going to say, hey, the Ford government did that too. And at the beginning of the, of the, the shutdown, they did put a ban on evictions. Uh, we're not over the crisis yet, Cole. Uh, it's still here. As a matter of fact, as you know, a very strong concern that there's going to be a second wave. Why would the government lift the ban then, if the problem is still existing? Tenants are asking the same question. You have to remember that the so-called eviction ban did not stop landlords from taking legal action against tenants. In fact, landlords in Ontario filed over 6,000 eviction applications during the shutdown alone against tenants who are unable to pay rent in full. So they all this did is it created a backlog at, at, at the board, and Absolutely. that backlog is, is now being addressed. So, so it's, that means that there are a number of people right now that are going to find themselves in a rather precarious position. That's right. So what what would you like to see done here? Let's talk about strategies here. I mean, clearly the, the, the provincial government is not listening. Uh, the, the municipal governments, as you say, do have tools at their disposal here to be able to do something like this. Uh, the problem is only getting worse by the day, Cole. 
That's right. So eviction for unpaid rent during the COVID crisis needs to be taken off the table altogether. And eviction moratoriums need to be extended, given that this pandemic continues. And if anything, we're looking at the potential for a second wave as we enter fall and winter. Dreadful situation, and I just want people to get an understanding is when we talk about you know the, the number of homeless people that are here and, and the challenges that cities are facing these days, uh, this is a, a piece of legislation which could make this much, much worse. And uh, people need to be aware of that and, and, and put some pressure on the provincial government to do something about this. Cole, I, I'm glad you were able to join us today and shed some light on this. Thank you very much for the time. Continue good luck with the work you're doing. Thanks for having me. Cole Weber, of course, who is a legal clinic worker, uh, basically out of the Toronto area, but this is not a Toronto problem. It's a Hamilton problem, a London problem, a Toronto problem. I mean, you name it, and it seems to be getting worse. Uh, Suze Morrison is the uh, NDP uh, tenants' right critic for the Ontario legislature, and she joins us on the Bill Keller Show uh, to talk about the, the legislation, the proposed legislation and the impact. Suze, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Good morning. Let's talk a little bit about this legislation uh, that uh, basically the government is priding themselves on introducing uh, and that's going to freeze rents. But as our previous guest, Cole Weber, just indicated, uh, that really gives uh, landlords an opportunity to jack rents up considerably, which is going to make this bad situation much worse. Yeah, certainly I'm really concerned about uh, what this bill is actually going to look like. Uh, and the devil's really going to be in the details. I mean, you know, we've got a government here who, uh, you know, passed an eviction bill in the middle of a pandemic and called that protecting tenants. Uh, so to suggest that, um, you know, any rent freeze legislation that they put on the table is going to be, uh, you know, what they're claiming it, it will be is, um, uh, you know, concerning um you know we're really going to have to dig into the bill and see what's in it and uh you know watch it very closely i'm looking at some of the stats here and i'm sure you've seen these uh, to do with the hamilton particular area i've got no stats here for london or toronto yet but i'm sure they're of the same ilk uh six thousand sixty thousand household earners lost their jobs or lost in income obviously because of the pandemic and that's only continuing because the pandemic is continuing i know we're reopening but there's still some concern here uh as of last week there were 1225 people listed as homeless in hamilton's uh by the priority list but those are only the people that register you know that number is much higher than that yeah yeah absolutely and it's incredibly concerning you know we're in an unprecedented uh public health crisis uh, and, you know, our economy is suffering, jobs are suffering, people have, have lost their income, uh, and we need to be doing everything in our power to keep folks housed right now. Uh, we know that folks aren't going to be able to isolate at home if we see a second wave, if they don't have homes. You know, we can't afford not to keep people housed right now, uh, and the province really needs to step up to the plate here. Uh, you know, this is exactly why we've been calling for, uh, you know, a rent subsidy for tenants to help make sure that tenants are actually able to keep the rent paid. Um, it prevents evictions, uh, and it also makes sure that landlords are, are getting their rent checks as well. You know, it's win-win for both landlords and tenants, um, so we're continuing to push the province for, for a rent subsidy. Uh, you know, and we've also been calling for rent freezes, but it just doesn't go far enough. You know, tenants needed support months ago, uh, and this is a bill that won't come into effect until next year. Do these guys not understand math? I, I, I mean, I'm looking at, for instance, <laughs> uh, the typical person who's who's on Ontario Works right now gets 731 bucks a month. Uh, the average one-bedroom apartment here in Hamilton goes for 1400 
a month or more. That's that's the average. I mean, some are more. There are a couple that are few, mm-hmm. less than that, I guess, depending on living conditions. Uh, first of all, they can't make the rent payments mm-hmm. uh, if that's what they're making. And second of all, how do yeah. they eat? How do they do anything else? I mean, th- 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 is nobody paying attention to the numbers here? I honestly, I, I can't, I can't defend them. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how our, um, you know, ODSP and OW rates have been uh, kept so low for so long. Uh, it's, it's as you said, it's unlivable. Uh, it's unlivable uh, amounts. You cannot pay rent. Uh, you know, I know your numbers are bad in in Hamilton. Here in Toronto, the average price of a one bedroom apartment is over twenty one hundred a month. Uh, you know, and and even the third payments don't pay the rent. Um, there's nothing left. How are families supposed to keep the internet on so their kids can can do online learning? Uh, how are they supposed to put food on the table? Uh, you know, it's folks need more support and they need it yesterday. Well, and by the way, we're going to talk about that aspect of it a little bit later on about kids going back to school, uh, because the short-term answer is if they don't have internet at home because the parents can't afford it, they're probably going to have to stay in the classroom longer, which exposes them to the possibility of, of contracting COVID even more, which is a ridiculous scenario. But when we start looking at what's going on here, uh, this is not a new issue, as we said, and it's not just the homeless mm-hmm. issue, but it comes down to, as you mentioned, income. You know, this is a government that just said, okay, uh, you know, they, they killed the, the, the pilot project that was talking about livable wages. Uh, they killed the increase in minimum wage. Uh, they said, we're not going to do that. Uh, and it's not as if they, this, this thing hasn't been studied to death. I mean, you know, Suze. I mean, I mean you know, the, the previous liberal government years ago actually had a, a bipartisan committee under Francis Lankin, a former minister. Uh, and they, they came up with a series of recommendations that said, yeah, yeah, this is good. But they didn't do it. They didn't, they didn't take half of them into consideration. Uh, we have a crisis here, and it really comes down to the people don't make enough money. They don't have enough money to, to, to live on right now. And, and this, this yeah. is only underscoring that. Yeah, I mean, you know, for 15 years under successive liberal and conservative governments, um, we've seen issues like housing and homelessness and rent control and poverty absolutely neglected. Nothing has gotten better over the last 15 years. Um, and we need real substantive uh, change and investment in things like social housing, uh, in better, uh, you know, tenant uh, protections like rent control. Uh, You know, these are the types of things that tenants need, uh, and not just now in a pandemic, but, you know, over the last 15 years. uh, You know, we didn't get here overnight, but now we're watching our, uh, you know, our our housing crisis in this province uh, become exponentially worse uh, once it's been put under under the pressure cooker of a pandemic. Uh, you know, it's, it's what did folks, you know, what did, what did the previous liberal and conservative governments think were going to happen, uh, as soon as our communities faced a little bit, uh, you know, even, a, even a small crisis, let alone a global pandemic. Uh, you know, the, the system was never set up to, to, to succeed. Uh, and it's, it's tenants and people in poverty that, you know, are hurting the hardest. Well, I remind people, again, that you know, you're going to talk about handouts, and I'm going to hear all sorts of phrases like that on social media after you and I have this conversation. But I'll remind them that the living wage program, that uh, the pilot project uh, that the, the previous government did try to enact uh, and this government killed, was actually enacted by Hugh Siegel and the Conservatives uh, many, many years ago. Uh, and, and there are many advocates all across party lines that s- sincerely believe that that's the, one of the solutions, not the whole solution, but one of the solutions. Uh, listen, what, what happens here? i got about a minute left. Uh, I mean, yeah. you know, when the autism program was rolled out a, lot, a while ago, Sue's public pressure made them change that. Uh, the initial 
very flawed back-to-school program has had some modifications to it because of public pressure. Do we Is the same strategy going to have to be used for this? Uh, you know, I think so, in a lot of ways. You know, it's going to take a lot of people, uh, you know, really standing uh, standing up to this conservative government um, to fight for, for what we need, and that's better protections for tenants. You know, certainly, um, you know, I'm so fortunate to be at Queen's Park with my NDP colleagues, and we've got a really great team around the table that, you know, holding this government accountable in the legislature. Uh, but it certainly goes a long way when folks in our communities are, uh, you know, writing letters and calling the premier and the conservative MP, MPPs as well uh, to tell them, um, you know, what they really think uh, about these dangerous moves that they're making and the types of supports we need to see in our communities, like a rent subsidy. Um, and so, you know, the more, um, you know, the more voices we've got singing in the chorus, I think certainly the, the stronger our calls will be. Well, when the legislature gets back to work in a couple of weeks, uh, I'm sure this is going to be front and center, and it's going to be a pretty lively debate. Suze, thank you so much for the time today. Glad you could join us. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Suze Morrison is the Ontario NDP tenants' right critic, and they'll certainly be addressing this proposed legislation. Rent freeze has actually uh, got some ramifications, and uh, I'd like to think that the government's going to take that into consideration before they do any next steps here. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. In uh, London, uh, schools will be open September 14th, and Hamilton's going to be on the 8th of September. Uh, major concerns going forward? Yeah, there's a long list of those from parents, from teachers, from uh, a number of different groups now about the uh, the province's plan. Uh, we've done things about mask wearing, uh, social distancing, all of these sorts of things. A lot of parents, though, are really concerned that once the kids go back into the classroom, uh, they could expose themselves to that second wave of COVID-19. And uh, Dr. Teresa Tan, Canada's top doc, says, yeah, that's inevitable. You know, the level of activity of COVID-19 is under manageable control. We have quite low levels of illness, but that still doesn't necessarily negate all the myriads of questions that are floating through someone's head before school. So I think it is important to have those dialogues and, and questions answered under your specific circumstances. Well, are those questions being answered uh, to the satisfaction of parents and, uh, and concerned folks around? Let's uh, bring Dr. Todd Coleman into the conversation, Ph.D. assistant uh, professor in the Department of Health Sciences at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us again. Thanks for having me again. Let's, let me ask you, Doctor, about our, our, our concern right now and, and, and the validity of those concerns. I mean, you know, we've got... Uh, it's a number of parents that are uh, concerned about what may happen and the exposure that their kids are going to have when they go back into the classroom. Uh, Dr. David Williams, who is the Ontario uh, Medical Officer of Health, says, look, they've done everything they possibly could. I'm paraphrasing, but that seems to be it, that, you know, th there is no perfect system. Uh, do we just go ahead with what we're doing here and just figure and hope for the best, fingers crossed? Yeah, uh, I, I'm feeling the same way. I'm, I'm a little, uh, I would be as, as concerned as the next person, and, and I think... Uh, what Dr. Tam said in terms of the inevitability of uh, uh, something happening in the school system is likely uh, a very strong likelihood at this point. Well, especially because, uh, you know, recent history shows every other jurisdiction that's tried to do this usually has had uh, an uptick in, in cases, some more severe than others, but an un uptick nonetheless. So uh, I, her, the, her inevitability seems to to be the way to go here. I guess this is going to happen no matter what. It, yeah, there, there's a, a, I'd say, a very strong likelihood of it happening. Uh, the the thing to consider, though, is that a lot of the the school outbreaks that we've seen so far tend to be uh, stuff that's happened in the United States. So 
so far, which uh, if you think about it in terms of the sheer number of background cases that they have compared to us, is it, it's not comparable. So the risk is lower in on the Ontario and the Canadian setting because the background number of cases is not as high. But we know that it's really easy to transmit this virus, meaning that the likelihood of a transmission happening in a school setting uh, is still pretty high. And the, the, I understand it could be argued that it's an apples and oranges uh, situation between the, some of those U.S. jurisdictions and what's happening up mm-hmm. here. Uh, but I guess what feeds the confusion and maybe the concern that a lot of people are having too, though, Doctor, is that uh, there's a lot of people that seem to think we're letting our guard down, that the numbers here in Canada are pretty good. Um, you know, we haven't defeated the virus, but, you know, we seem to have tamed it for the time being. Uh, and I'm noticing, you know, less social distancing. Uh, mask wearing is still great, and that's fabulous. But, uh, you know, we're, we're looking into this situation right now and saying, well, are we, are we really gambling here by putting the kids back into this environment so soon? I think that's the right word to use. It is a gamble. Uh, the Premier himself said that he's going to be, I think he used the word, uh, worried sick for the first few weeks of school um, because of the possibilities of transmission happening. That doesn't instill a lot of confidence in people, unfortunately. Yeah. Which, yeah, I mean, what you're looking for here is somebody to say, and I get that. I mean, you know, let's be realistic. There is no perfect system. But, you know, when when we ask ourselves, and I talked to parents in, from cities all over Ontario over the last couple of weeks in this whole thing, and we've talked many times ourselves, Doctor, and uh, the, are we doing everything we possibly can? You know, I mean, I look at the, the, the precautions they do, for instance, in restaurants right now, vis-a-vis social distancing and, and, and masks and, and certainly, uh, you know, barriers that are put up. Uh, you know, you see that at stores, you see that in restaurants. Uh, there's not much talk of doing anything like that in schools. And, you know, it's, it's the same virus, yeah. but, you know, yeah, and I've seen I've seen different school boards discuss different uh, options. Uh, for example, putting kids in gyms instead of uh, in classrooms and things like that. Yeah, that 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 seems to be the main issue is that there doesn't seem to be a consistent message about exactly what is being done in the school system, and unfortunately, it comes across as uh, our the school system is less important than your local restaurant. Uh, in terms of of the practice of precautions that are being put in place to prevent this from spreading, and and that's that's not the message we want to send out. And and you know, I'd like to think that the government's not that that cold hearted, where they're still, you know worried about the, the the economic aspect of this and and not paying so much attention to to this what's happening in the work environment, but also to the kids that are going on in school. Uh, and it is a work environment, by the way, for teachers and educational assistants and people of that ilk, too, uh, about what's happening. The, the other element to this, too, is I know that the, the government has uh, has come out late last week anyway, come out with their, uh, their plan for, well, what if there is a spike? Uh, and I've heard a lot of feedback from a number of people over the last couple of days, doctor, that say, well, that's pretty vague. Uh, are they going to send our kids home? Uh, does that mean I have to quit my job? Well, not quit, but leave my job again and look after my kids for a 14-day quarantine period? Uh, does the whole class get sent home? Does the school get shut down? We don't really know how this is going to work, do we? No, not specifically. I've seen different uh, boards indicate different uh, uh, levels of precision in terms of what they're actually saying would happen. Uh, some of them saying, for example, if a, a, a child... 
uh, or even a, a child's family member test positive, they'll isolate the child and then call their family to come pick them up. But they don't really go beyond that in saying what's going to happen to all of the other children that they were in contact with that day. Uh, all of those kinds of things just seem to not be in place. Uh, I think to the level of satisfaction to a lot of concerned parents out there. There's a couple of things that, that we were told were, were key in, in controlling or uh, flattening the curve was the phrase, obviously, that we used a lot in the springtime and in the early summer, Doctor. Uh, and one of that, of course, was, was the, the preventative measures, you know, the, the masks, the personal protective equipment, certainly. Social distancing was part of that, too. But they also talked about testing and contact tracing. Uh, and I don't hear a whole lot of talk about that anywhere. And as a matter of fact, there aren't. Uh, my understanding is there isn't going to be testing in the schools. They're really just going to rely on, I guess, the parents and to a certain extent the teachers to to be able to identify symptoms and 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 move from there. Uh, but what about the contact testing that's going to go on and, and the tracing after that uh, to find out where else that person's been involved in? I mean, are, are we leaving ourselves open here that uh, that you know, a couple of cases could magnify or multiply into a number of cases? You're, you're highlighting one of the key gaps in this is that testing and contact tracing is the first uh, uh, element to, to trying to contain this. And as soon as this happens, if you don't create that bridge in terms of uh, uh, testing and then uh, ensuring that your any infection chains are contained, uh, you leave the potential open for, for future spread. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, children are, are, they don't manifest the disease as severely as other groups. Public Health Ontario has uh, released a report saying that the likelihood of those uh, asymptomatic cases uh, that we have been hearing so much about are slightly higher in children and youth compared to adults, meaning there's potential for unknown transmission to happen in schools uh, compared to uh, just in the general adult setting. And, and, of course, if they are asymptomatic and showing absolutely no symptoms at all, of course, uh, you know, they're going to bring their virus home. They're going to wherever and spread it to other kids, uh, on, you know, on the playground or wherever they're going to be, that, which is why, I mean, we were told time and again, it was drilled into us that testing is important. Testing is important. Why aren't we testing in the schools? I, 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 I know that's somewhat of a rhetorical question. But I, I, I don't want to find ourselves in a situation where, uh, you know, six weeks, eight weeks from now, we're looking back and say, boy, I wish we'd done this instead. Uh, and maybe, you know, whatever spike we're going to see may not have been happened or could have been mitigated. But uh, like I say, the, the you know, the premier's words and, and, and the medical officer of health statement that, uh, you know, we, this is the best we can come up with right now, it's, uh, it's falling pretty short and it's not, not really reassuring an awful lot of people. No, it doesn't build a lot of confidence. And, and the thing with that, too, is that it's not as if it's completely unheard of to have public health nurses in school settings uh, helping facilitate uh, uh, health services. We see, we've see we seen it for years. We've seen it for decades with various testing uh, and other health uh, promotion strategies that they do in school settings. So I'm not too sure exactly why this network of testing uh, uh, wouldn't have been uh, considered a little bit more uh, concretely uh, when considering the op- reopening of schools. I, I think it's it's a bit of a gap uh, among many uh, with the strategies for that we've seen so far.
Well, one of the key issues that, that we've talked about, about and it's the physical environment and this physical schools, the bricks and mortar of the schools themselves, mm-hmm. uh, that seems to be getting a lot more attention, and I know there's a report that came out about this this past weekend too, uh, is ventilation systems within these buildings uh, and, and the spread through that. We, uh, we know obviously pretty much now how the virus can be spread from one individual to the other. Uh, but, you know, a lot of these buildings, as one individual told me over the weekend, they wouldn't pass building codes now, uh, you know, the, 20, the 2020 building code. These, some of these buildings that were built even in the 70s and 80s, and they're still being used, or into the 90s. Uh, things have changed, and there's a question right now as to whether or not we're, the, we're sending students into these little Petri dishes where this, this virus could actually start spreading pretty quickly. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, evidence that the way that air systems in, in specific buildings can potentially contribute to uh, infection, uh, especially with systems that are, like you said, 20, 30, 40, or 50 years old at this point, um, nothing considering uh, uh, what what the airflow looks like in each classroom. This requires a lot of logistics, obviously, but I think, I think, Really being prepared is not uh, it's not a, a, an over-exaggeration with something like this. Uh, students and, and children aren't interacting only with each other. Like you said earlier, they're interacting with teachers, they're interacting with staff who are more susceptible to the severe forms of, of infection. Uh, and I, I don't really see a lot of, of consideration for the, those extra layers that we already know uh, over the last six months what this looks like. Yeah, the report that I saw I, was was actually pretty concerning. I mean, they said there are some classrooms that don't even have windows, uh, which is problematic in and of itself. Uh, others uh, are just because of the age of the building. I mean, our, my, our kids are, you know, all, all through the system right now, but when they were still in elementary school, uh, they went to one of the older schools here at Hamilton, a stately old building, historical building. It was a look, mm-hmm. but the ventilation system was awful. I mean, some of the windows couldn't even open because they'd been painted shut over so many generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so ventilation was, was you know, a, a pipe dream for somebody. And and that's somewhat of a concern, obviously, because we have heard of, of the, the transmission and the way it's transmitted. And it's, it's it, I know it's, you know, it's it's a major problem, and which is maybe one of the reasons why government decided not to address it at all. Uh, just saying, well, we'll deal with it as it happens. You can't knock down schools and rebuild brand new ones to try to fix this. But you have to think that there's, there'd be some sort of a plan to try to deal with some of these older buildings. Yeah, it would really, uh, it, it would have been a bit more reassuring to see whether or not there was extra consideration on that. Because it, once you start thinking about this and you really think about it clearly, uh, you think, okay, uh, older ventilation systems, not a good thing to prevent transmission. Uh, lack of social distancing, not a good thing to prevent transmission. Lack of mask wearing, not a good thing to prevent transmission. So we're just adding more and more and more on the, the heap here that could potentially make it a, a perfect scenario for transmission to happen. Kids to give this to teachers and kids to give this to their family members. I mean, I'm not an expert on HVAC system, and, and even with your great expertise in so many right. fields, Doc, you know, I, I, nor are you, but right. there's got to be a plan somewhere. I mean, you know, what, I, I, some sort of a, a thing that they could do, you know, to, to filtration systems or something. I mean, you know, do an evaluation of some of these buildings uh, about air quality and ventilation, and, and if there's a problem, uh, surely there's, there's at least a, a stopgap measure that could be implied and, and employed in a situation like that, but I don't even hear that discussion. No, and it, it, it's, it's in addition to what you said about the lack of testing. It's it's another another big gap 
in this plan that I'm sure uh, doesn't reassure parents whatsoever in terms of sending uh, their kids back to school, and uh, rightfully so. Well, and again, it comes back to the contact tracing, doesn't it? I mean, you know, if somebody does prove uh, to be positive in a situation like that, and that's going to be pretty difficult to determine since they're not doing much in the way of testing, uh, you know, where do you decide? Is it the whole classroom or, you know, if is it, you know, everybody that used that, that boy's washroom that day? I mean, you know, where do you go and where do you draw the line here and how do you gather that information, which was so key initially in spreading the virus? And as, as one parent, you know, asked me rather rhetorically the other day on the program, uh, we shut the schools down in mid-March because of this. Uh, what's different? The virus is still there. It may not be spreading as quickly, but it's still there. And uh, the only reason the numbers and kids were down is because they weren't going into the school environment. Are we setting ourselves up for failure here? Uh, Yeah, I'd say, unfortunately, that's not uh, super clear on my part because I would answer yes and no. So, yes, there's still a number of gaps and concerns here. The, the, The part that I have hope for is that we're at a relatively low number of cases. Uh, compared to other settings that have reopened and seen outbreaks, which means that the systems uh, that we have in place, which are a lot better than they were six months ago when we shut schools down, uh, means that uh, the low number of cases means that contact tracing is not spread out over tens of thousands of cases. Rather, it's through uh, uh, roughly a 1,000 across Ontario, which means public health isn't stretched thin which means that hopefully they're actually containing most of, and identifying most of the infections at this point so that we don't have one slip away or several dozen slip away into the school system. However, um, the, the, this virus is very unique. Uh, we know that people can transmit it uh, with low levels of symptoms or be asymptomatic. And I think that unfortunately is is where we will we'll probably end up seeing some infections happening. Uh, I, I guess the uh, the ultimate uh, goal here that everybody seems to be reaching for here is a vaccine. Uh, and, and, you know, there's some good news there that work is progressing. Mm-hmm. Uh, although the, the, the weird political promise by Trump that he's going to have one by Election Day, I think, is far-fetched. And I, I think finally <laughs> somebody, the FDA, uh, finally admitted that that's, that can't happen. Oh, there's a lot of great work being done, though, and some, and some huge strides being made in a relatively short period of time, isn't there? Yeah, there's a lot of hopeful promise uh, in terms of vaccines going on right now. Uh, I don't uh, realistically think that it would be ready in the next uh, two months before the American election. Uh, however, uh, it does seem as if we're moving into uh, a fairly hefty phase of trials with a number of different ones. So hopefully uh, next year sees some some uh, highlights here, and I, I wouldn't let, let let's hope that uh, as opposed to what we've seen for testing, vaccine programs uh, are a little bit more uh, thought out in terms of the school system as well. Yeah, we had that discussion with uh, Dr. Mark Loeb, uh, infectious disease specialist who works out of McMaster, as you know, and uh, uh, he's. Uh, teaming up now, I guess, for the the phase three of the testing over in the UK uh, trials that are going on right now, mm, yeah. uh, and and warned us again that you know you can't skip steps here. You've got to right. do everything to make sure that not just effective, but that it's safe. And uh, you know, if you just say, "Oh, who needs phase three? Let's just carry on and throw this thing out there," uh, you could be making a bad situation worse. Yeah, and this is uh, it's lessons learned over the last 
100 years of pharmaceutical research uh, and vaccine research that you don't release things out uh, that quickly because the potential for side effects, uh, whether short-term or long-term, are, are just, again, to use that word, it's a gamble. Uh, you don't release something without really knowing the uh, safety and efficacy uh, of long-term of something like this. Always reassuring to get uh, your perspective on this, Doctor. Thank you so much for the time today. Great. Thanks for having me again. Take care. Dr. Todd Coleman, of course, uh, from the University of Wilfrid-Laurier University, of course, up in uh, KW. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. An active weekend, as we mentioned, uh, south of the border because of the uh, racial protests and political protests that were going on. Lots happening on this side of the border this past weekend as well. At least 2,000 protesters marched uh, towards downtown Toronto Police Headquarters on Saturday afternoon uh, with uh, peaceful but passionate demonstrations. Uh, several protests held throughout eastern Canada, in not just Toronto, but also in, uh, in London, Ontario, Montreal, Fredericton, Halifax, and a number of other communities in support of Black Lives Matter. Uh, and uh, a number of speakers at all of those rallies talked about uh, defunding the police in those particular communities. I'm sure you saw the uh, the, the footage of uh, the Montreal protest where they actually uh, uh, tore down the uh, John A. McDonald statue from uh, in that's held in downtown Montreal. Uh, I want to I get some reaction to this and some read into this because this is not just a U.S. issue. This is a, a societal issue that we're dealing with here right now and about racial tensions and about treatment of blacks and about racism and bigotry uh, and at so many different angles. Uh, Christo Avalis joins us, a political expert and YouTube commentator, formerly at Queen's University and the University of Toronto. Uh, Christo, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. You were watching and, and tweeting uh, as, as you saw this develop over the weekend. What are your thoughts on what you saw? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important that we're seeing that, you know, the, the issue of Black Lives Matter being more than just something in the United States. Because certainly the, the United States has a very particular context with, with slavery and with, you know, Jim Crow and segregation. And, and it, we shouldn't downplay that. But, you know, you know, whether it's Canada or whether it's England or whether it's a lot of other countries, there, there's a long history of of racism and there are histories of slavery and there are histories of, you know, quasi residential schools for black Canadians. There was racism against, you know, the, the, the first African communities in places like Nova Scotia. And so, you know, a lot of people might say, you know, when, when you cross the Canadian border, does the black lives matter issue stop mattering? And I don't think it does. And I think, you know, whether in Canada where it's maybe it's more hybrided with indigenous issues, I think it's still important to talk about. Well, because we've got our own history, and you're absolutely right. Anybody who thinks that as soon as you cross the border, uh, you know, that everything is going to be sap, you know, we all, you know, lock arms and sing kumbaya. Uh, we, we should forget, or not forget, rather, the fact that, I mean, long before Rosa Parks uh, uh, refused to go to the back of the bus uh, many, many years ago, Viola Desmond in, in Nova Scotia uh, walked into a movie theater against the protestations of, of the white owners and was arrested and charged as a result of that. I mean, th- there's been a lot of pressure and a lot of concerns and, and a lot of issues uh, with with tension uh, between races in this country for quite some time. No, certainly. I mean, the, yeah, segregation, again, maybe not as strictly codified and formulated as in the U.S. South, but maybe much more like in the north of the United States where segregation existed in these kind of uh, ad hoc ways, but still in a manner that made black people feel like they were less than, than human or made them feel like they were less than, than full citizens. And you know, we even have stories about Martin Luther King basically being told that he wouldn't be a good fit to visit 
provincial parks in New Brunswick sort of before he became, you know, the, the figure he was. I mean, this is a long issue. And, you know, for a long time in Canadian history, and there's been, um, you know, a really good book on the history of the black train porters. It talked about how, you know, Canada almost you know, sought to systematically exclude black people in its early history because it feared the, the kind of racial jungle theory. And so Canada saw in the United States the racism and the, and the intolerance. And rather than say, you know, judge the people enacting that hatred, which were the, you know, the overwhelmingly white population, they thought the problem was the fact that the black people existed there. And so Canada, one of our, for, for, for a long time, prided itself on having an almost exclusively white population. And so the True North Strong and Three was to be codified as the True North Strong and White, with the exception, of course, of our indigenous people. But the goal there was to eventually eliminate them over time. Yeah, and that's uh, another discussion, another argument that needs to be had at the same time. But do, do we pat ourselves on the back too readily on this side of the border, though, Christo? Uh, I mean, you know, because you know what the stories are, of course. You know, well, Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier when he you know, played for the Montreal Royals, the Dodgers farm team at the time. Uh, and that's true, but he was not accepted with open arms by an awful lot of baseball fans in Montreal, let alone when he went back to Brooklyn. Uh, there was a lot of pushback because of that. Uh, there's so many other things that have gone on. As you say, uh, the late Lincoln Alexander, of course, uh, the first black MP and left-handed governor for some time, was a dear friend of mine. Some of the stories he told me about the, the, the intolerance and the bigotry that he faced and the letters that were written and the things that were yelled at him uh, was disgusting. And, it, and it's still happening today. No, no, certainly. Uh, yeah. Look, there's, there's nothing wrong with noting that Canada has had, you know, bright spots. The United States has as well. There's nothing wrong with noting sure. those parts of history, but not to the exclusion of, like, telling the truth. So, you know, a common example is given is that whether it was through the Underground Railroad or whether it's through the, the Black Loyalists, you know, a lot of people of African descent came to what is now Canada, largely Nova Scotia, uh, after the uh, American Revolution uh, and came as free people. But what we are not often taught is that uh, slave owners loyal to the empire, loyal to the British crown, got to bring their slaves to Canada when they fleed the United States. So you had, on the one hand, black people that fought for their freedom uh, against the, the, the American rebels and came as free men to Nova Scotia, and were not given what they were promised in many cases, but you also had them come alongside the slaves of British loyalists. And often we're told about, you know, the story of the, the black people that sided with the crown and with their freedom, but less often the property of the British loyal aristocrats. And that's just one example of sort of the uneven history. There's nothing wrong with talking about the black loyalists and their contributions and, and how that was a kind of unique wrinkle of Canadian history, but we, we often forget the other part of it. Uh, at the other side of the coin, though, is there, are we wearing blinders? And I'm not suggesting that, you know, it's rampant, but, I mean, we've tried to have a discussion about this, about Black Lives Matter, and, and you know, there's been longstanding concerns in, in Toronto, for instance, and London, and Hamilton. We've had incidents here where, uh, you know, there have been accusations made back and forth about uh, racial inequality and the way they, that those some of those people are being treated, and especially by police in some instances, which we'll get to in a second about the defunding of police situations. But uh, are we, we seem... 
reticent to, to, to have a full and frank discussion about this. Uh, I, I saw on uh, the West Block on uh, Mercedes Stevenson's show on Global TV on Sunday morning, Erin uh, O'Toole, the new leader of the Conservatives on there, she asked Mr. O'Toole right up front, is, is there systemic racism in this country? And he, he dodged the question, you know, oh, we have to defend people in uniform and yada yada, and we have and racism, which is almost becoming kind of a trite phrase now, because, I mean, if somebody just throws that up and says, there, we've just had that discussion about racism. Uh, you know, the old situation here, Christo, is you can't solve a problem until you acknowledge the problem. Are we actually acknowledging that, that we have a concern with racism and a problem with racism on this side of the border? I mean, it, it, it depends. What Aaron O'Toole is saying, in a sense, is that racism does exist, but he seems to classify it as a series of individual decisions, and, and, that, and that does matter. You know, individual people treating other individuals poorly is part of racism, and we have to do our best to try and educate people and, and disincentivize that sort of behavior, but when you ask about systematics, it's about how does the how do police operate as a culture? How do our laws operate? How are they enforced? Are they enforced equally on people based on class, based on location, based on race, based on religion, immigration status, etc.? You know, and, and if not, how does that lead to certain things? A common example in the United States is that uh, white and black people use cannabis uh, in similar rates. But black people are far more likely to be arrested for it, and then when arrested for it, far more likely to face more serious charges. And one of the problems in Canada, and this is something that Jagmeet Singh has noted in, 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 in the federal parliament, is that, and many others have noted uh, at the municipal and, and provincial levels, is that we don't keep uh, race-based statistics in Canada. And maybe there's this belief, this maybe it's, it, it's obviously Pollyannic, that you know, we don't need to keep race-based statistics because we don't have, you know, systematic racism. But uh, whether it's with COVID uh, or whether it's with police violence or police overreach or what have you, a lot of people are, are, are seeing through the limited data we have that it's likely affecting people of color, black people and other, and other non-white populations. But we don't have the data. So, for instance, they've been able to look and say, where do people of color live in Toronto and where are levels of COVID highest? And they correlate. But because unlike in the U.S., we're not keeping race-based data on who's getting this illness, we can't be 100% sure. So one of the challenges of Canada is that because we don't collect data in the same way, um, it does potentially allow people to, to, to pretend the problem doesn't exist. So I, I think surveys have indicated that the majority of Canadians, I think, are, are empathetic to, to the Black Lives Matter uh, movement that's going on. Some of course, are just going to label them as radicals, of course, and we get that. The, but there's there's extremism on both sides, both left and right in this country. And you and I have had this discussion in the past. Most of us tend to be in the middle. It might be you know middle left or middle right, but but more gravitating to the middle than to the extremes. So there's support for that, and I think there's an understanding uh, that statistically there's a story there that, uh, as you say, uh, you know, blacks seem to suffer a lot more. They, they're suffering more from COVID. They're suffering more from incarceration uh, than than white people in this country. But is is the defund police movement uh, an overreaction to this or, or a consequential reaction to this that we don't understand? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily draw a false equivalency. You see Donald Trump try to do that, uh, you know, uh, since there's a false equivalency, there's extremists on the left and the right. But, you know, by and large, the people murdering folks in the street are generally uh, right-wing extremists. They're the ones shooting up churches. They're the ones shooting up synagogues. They're the ones shooting up mosques in Quebec. So I don't want to, for one second, draw a false equivalence between a few people that put on masks and tear down a piece of iron and people that shoot up Muslims in one of Canada's largest cities. So I'll just, I want to make that very clear. But 
sure. I, I, I do think that there, there, there is a, a general desire, I think, for defunding the police. I don't know if Canadians would support abolition, but the polling I've seen is that Canadians are basically 50-50 on the issue of defunding. The last poll I saw had a slight majority of support for defunding. But what that meant was a reallocation of resources away from police so that the jobs, some of the things police do could be done by people that are maybe better equipped for it. So I think a couple examples would be, you know, a lot of the recent tragedies in Canada have revolved around police doing mental health checks. Uh, specifically, there, you know, there was, there was a couple in the GTA, there was some in the Maritimes as well, there was one in PC, and in some of these cases, people died, and they all revolved around people who were either racialized or indigenous. And the feeling from some folks is, if you reallocate some of those resources to mental health professionals and have them do checks, at least in some cases, then you can shrink police budgets, police can still be there to do some of the things police need to do, but they don't need to be doing the sorts of things they're not equipped to do. Police are sort of like a hammer, and a hammer see nails in a certain way, and they'll always try to hammer them down. Another example would be, say, the decriminalization of drugs, uh, the decriminalization of sex work, the decriminalization of a lot of vice-related crimes. If you, if you do that, if you, if you remove that from the police umbrella, you can shrink their budgets and allocate that money to uh, addictions counseling and things like that, or helping people who want to exit sex work uh, to exit it, or helping people who do practice sex work to do so safely for them and their clients. And I think that that might be a, a, a reasonable vision to defund the police. Now, again, the, the politics behind it are still divided, but I think that that is a, is a, that is a reasonable position for people to take. And I think it could be found within the the mainstream of Canadian politics, perhaps not within the Liberal and Conservative parties, but certainly within the New Democrats. But what you've just described, uh, that, that whole methodology that you've just described, is, I, I guess defunding is not an inaccurate verb, but I mean, more importantly, it's, it's, it's a reevaluation of, of the function of, of policing in this community. And, and, and I think a lot of people are going to be in favor of that. A lot of police officers I've talked to are in favor of that. But to arbitrarily say we're going to cut that budget by 50% and not understand uh, the implications of that and simply say we're going to throw that money elsewhere, I, I, I think it's short-sighted. I mean, there has to be a strategy in place for something like that to happen. Well, no, I think that's a fair point. I think, like, you know, if you're just going to, to yeah, if you throw out a, a rather large number, then people are going to wonder what is the, 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 the or where is that money going to go? What is that going to do? Is it a true reallocation? Are, are politicians just going to pass it along as a tax cut? Like, you know, like, how, are, how is a, a defunding of any institution, whether it's education or healthcare, what is the purpose of the, the re- reduction of budgets? And I think that. If you could, for instance, say, you know, the, I think that the Toronto City Council, I believe it was a 10% proposal, which failed, which I think is probably a bit more palatable to people. I think 50% to start would, would scare a lot of people. But I think if you said, look, let's just say for round numbers, uh, 10% cut is $100 million a year uh, or something of that sort. We can allocate this amount to housing, this amount to mental health, this amount to addictions counseling, this amount to uh, you know, counseling and support for, for sex workers and, and other people, uh, and, and that's where we'll reallocate the money, and that work doesn't necessarily need to be done by police officers. And so the police budget shrinks, but the supports people need are still there. And as you know, not all police officers are in agreement, of course, 
But this will and potentially allow police officers to focus on the things they're actually trained to do. But there's got to be a couple of other pieces to that. And, and by the way, some of the speakers, and I, saw, I know you saw some of the comments on the weekend too, uh, that are calling for eliminating policing altogether and, and, and you know, ending the prison system. Uh, that's a rather Pollyannish attitude. I mean, we still need uh, referees in this game. I mean, there are some people that are just going to do bad things, uh, and there have to be some people to make those decisions. So that has to happen. But the other element to this too, whether it's a 10% reduction in, in police budgets or a 50% budget, whatever it's going to be, Christo, does that necessarily weed out the, the the people that are doing that job that may have racist or bigoted tendencies? Not really. No. I, well, I think there's the, you need a multi pronged approach. Certainly, um, police have to. You have to look at uh, how police are hired, how they are trained, what they are trained to do and not do, and that is something that is at least in part separated from defunding. Because you're right, not everyone supports the abolition of police. Now, it's an idea that is growing in popularity rather quickly. Uh, and in some communities in the United States, I wouldn't be surprised if it has the majority opinion, especially parts of the country that, frankly, the police make their communities less safe. But um, I, I, I would agree that we're maybe not there yet. But the point is, is that you're right. As long as you have police, it's not just a question of defunding, but, but how they operate. But, you know, like the, the, even with the prison industrial complex or, or what have you, the, the reality is that there's discussions. Maybe people aren't there where you're, you're at the position of abolishing prisons. Um, but, you know, does everybody, is everybody currently in prison? Do they belong in prison? And if they don't belong in prison, what kind of care do they need? You know, do they, you know does everyone on drug-related offenses need to be in prison? You know, this is a big discussion in the United States where they have even harsher laws on that regard. Um, mm-hmm. Does everybody who's, who's sold a little bit of marijuana need to be in a penitentiary? And, you know, maybe not, you're not abolishing prisons, but maybe you can significantly reduce the prison population uh, by, by changing uh, criminal code. And I think these are discussions that maybe, again, are, are more palatable to the average Canadian. Uh, which is the kind of discussion we have to have. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And, and actually, I think if nothing else, I'll explain to our listeners uh, that this is a multifaceted problem and it's going to take a multifaceted decision. It's not simply a, a matter of, oh, let's cut budgets. There's a lot more that has to go into that discussion. Uh, Christo, I'd like to think that maybe we started it off with a lot of people today, too. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks for having me. Take care. Christo Eiffel, of course, uh, you can see him on YouTube, of course, uh, formerly Queen's University, University of Toronto, and always a welcome guest on this program. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.